book review and the observer's calendar on episode 366 of the actual astronomy podcast show i'm chris and joining me is shane we are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars so we received a bit of a book review from our good friend dave chapman shane do you want to uh take a quick read of this one yeah, for sure. So uh, Dave sent this in and, and the title of the book is The Story of the Universe in 100 Stars. Not to be confused with all the stars you should know, which Dave Chapman has been working on. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, Dave's a real superstar, you could say, of, uh, uh, of, of the stars. Man. Yeah, you've been I'm, I'm turning with, into you. <laughs> you've been hanging around with somebody with a bad sense of humor for too long. <laughs> no kidding. All right. So Dave... Uh, uh, begins this by saying, uh, when I received this book as a 70th birthday gift this summer, at first I was worried. I'll tell you about that after, as this is supposed to be a, a book review. This book teaches us much about astronomy and astrophysics by telling the story of individual stars. It is a case of communicating the general by focusing on the particular. For example, the first star described is, uh, ooh, I'm not going to say this right. Hikobishi? Hikobishi? Heiko Boshi? Yeah, I don't know. Heiko Boshi? Okay. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, which is the same as Altair, but the Japanese version. Uh, right off the mark, the author teaches us uh, that the stars are for everyone and that different cultures have different sky stories. Picking at random uh, the story of Zed Camelinatus? No, Cameli... Camelon? Camelontus. Yeah, I don't know. I, Zed uh, Chameleon, I think. Yeah. Zed Chameleon, okay. Uh, introduces black dwarf stars, which I'd never heard of. The story of the sun is all about the astronomical unit. There is no obvious internal organization of the 100 stars. They are not even numbered. Each chapter is only two to three pages long. So it's a great book to read in available moments. Paraphrasing the author, the 100 stars have little in common. Some are bright and well-known, others are feeble and observable only in professional telescopes. Most don't even have sensible names, just catalog numbers. The book is written in a good scientific journalism style, avoiding jargon and mathematics, using plain language to convey the ideas. I believe most amateur astronomers and even professional astronomers would enjoy this book and would learn from it. Now, why was I worried? I have been working on a book concept called Stars You Should Know. And for a split second, I thought Great someone... Title. Has... Great title. <laughs> yeah. I wonder where that title... Okay, keep going. <laughs> and he said, uh, for a split second, I thought somebody had scooped me. Although there is a small overlap in the subject matter of these books, in brackets, the author's real book and my imagined one, I really did not have anything to worry about as I quickly discovered. The book under review is very science-oriented, where mine will be more observational and cultural in theme. Whew. Portions of my work on this have appeared in guest appearances on the actual astronomy podcasts with Canadian hosts Chris Beckett and Shane Ludke. The author of this book, I believe, is Florian Freistetter? 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 Yeah. Freistetter, something like that. And it's called The Universe in 100 Stars. The mm -hmm. Story of the Universe in 100 Stars. Yeah. So uh, thanks, Dave. Appreciate the review. I was not aware of this book, but it does sound interesting. It does. I, I am very much looking forward to Dave's book, though, simply because when he when he came up with this idea, I, I had bought him brunch last Christmas. So we sat there for a few hours and, and drank a couple pots of coffee. And he kind of 
you know, we were just chatting and he kind of had mentioned this thinking about, I, I thought of this other book, but I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. This, uh, you know, all these, the hundred, he was, I think originally working with something like the title of the hundred brightest stars or the hundred most interesting stars or something like that. And he started detailing it. Some, I'm like, wow, these are really good stars. Everybody should know. And then we, we slowly have, uh, transform some of those into a podcast where I think we're ended up covering, I think in the, in total, like 50, I think ish in the mm-hmm. end is, is what we'll end up covering once we do the last episode in, in November or December. So we'll, we'll have included about half of the hundred or 110 that Dave has in mind. They are the the sort of the hundred stars. If you can learn those hundred stars, then I think uh, you, you will have a pretty good understanding of the stars in the nighttime sky that you used to navigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that would be a really good book. If Dave is going to go forward with it, I'm super excited. And if he's on the fence, uh, here's a vote to to do it. <laughs> I would love to see that book. I think we should write the, the what do you call it, the intro or preface or whatever. Sure. And write that for Dave. And then we can give it the actual astronomy seal of approval. I, I think we'd sell it. I would buy that. I'm not looking for a free copy. I would buy that. And uh and proudly, uh, you know, promote it. Dave is, uh, is a physicist, you know, that's his professional training worked, uh, for the government of Canada in, in that capacity. Um, so he's a good person that understands both the amateur astronomy aspects and how to communicate those, um, with other amateur astronomers or the public, you know, he's, he's written and authored several other books. I think this would be a good one, but see every other work that he's done is he's a very collaborative person. As I was telling you, um, before we record it today, he's helped me out an awful lot with uh, with any of my astronomy projects that I've ever approached him on. He's been very helpful. And I think that's what he spent much of his time doing with the astronomy writing is collaborating with other people. Originally, he used to write a series of articles for the uh, Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. I always enjoyed those as well, but he kind of drifted away from that when he uh, got into some of these other projects. So I think it's sort of a, a return sort of full circle. I look forward to that. I think it'd be pretty cool. All right. We have the, um, an email here from our new, a new Patreon supporter, a newer. He sent this uh, last week. I think uh, it's from Don and Don writes, because we'd been communicating about a couple of things. He said, thanks for the quick response, Chris. Yes, we do try to reply to everybody, either Shane or me or both. I think we probably respond to 98% of our emails. I don't think it would be possible to do 100%. And sometimes one gets past the goalie. But uh, yeah, we do try to respond to everybody. He says, I can't imagine the discipline it takes to be an observer, hold down a full-time job, and have time to keep us all entertained. After hearing you and Shane reinforce it on earlier podcasts, I joined a local club last year called the Astronomy Society of Long Island. I think we have other members, or at least one other member in that uh astronomy club or society mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think we do and he has loved it and especially enjoying the outreach effort uh there's nothing like showing friends strangers the creators of the moon rings of saturn etc and seeing their reaction for the first time you know you know who else is on long island this is just off the top of my head i think i think this is correct but i'm like 99.9 percent sure is phil harrington you know the great binocular mm. yeah an observer yeah i think he's okay. he's on long island as well what are your thoughts on astronomy club, Shane? Shouldn't everybody just do all this stuff online? After all, 
we're doing something online. We're not an astronomy club and we like that people enjoy and listen to our show, but what are your thoughts on astronomy clubs? I think they're great. Um, you know, I've been a member of the Regina Society since I think 2003. So I guess that's 20 years now. Um, mm -hmm. And it has really, it's done a lot of things for me. It, it, um, Sort Why that's how you and I met Shane. Well, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's true. And, and, you know, I think if I had not joined the club, I'm not even sure how much I would have pursued the hobby to be perfectly candid. Um, because when I joined the club, I was really only looking at the planets and the moon with my eight inch Newtonian. And I thought when I started off that that's all I would ever look at. But then, you know, you, you meet people in the club, you hear about what they're observing, and then you actually go out and observe with them. And, uh, it really opened up, you know, my, my thoughts in terms of what I would observe and how I could enjoy this hobby even more. Um, so, you know, that, that aspect of it is great. The, the socialization and meeting people, you know, is, is awesome. And, and it's, it is nice to observe with other people. Like sometimes I do, you know, my, sometimes I do enjoy my solo sessions in the backyard, but I really enjoy going out with others and observing and, you know, that's a huge benefit. And then, you know, clubs do an awful lot of other activity that, you know, we all sort of take advantage of at different times, like organizing star parties or producing, uh, observing lists that are interesting, or, you know, if it's a larger society, like the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, publish all sorts of material. So there's a lot of benefit and supporting a club, either with, you know, your annual membership dues or volunteering to, uh, help forward some of the initiatives I think is awesome for all of us. Uh, so I'm a big fan of them. Uh, I'm still a member. If anybody from the Regina Center is listening, you know, apologies. I'm not, I haven't been super active in the club lately, but but I do what I can where I can. And yeah, I'm, I can't say enough about joining a club. Yeah, I, I didn't join a club for a long time. There was, there was a few reasons for that. One, I was, when I got into astronomy, I was only um, 17 or, or 18, I guess. And because of that, when I went to the club events, everybody was quite a bit older than than me. And I found that a bit, uh, I don't know, I I enjoyed it. Everybody was very nice and everything. But as well, like the events were taken, or like the club meetings were taking place on Friday nights. And I was like, I'm not going to a club lecture on Friday night. This is not happening. Um, I have other things to do. And I, you know, with other life events, I just wasn't going to join. Uh, but I sort of loosely became interested in in joining the RASC. And then eventually I did join and I went to every meeting for like a few years and then moved to Ontario, went to every meeting for a few years, and then moved to Regina, went to every meeting for a few years. And then um, I just really like to do a lot of observing. And I found that sometimes my involvement, see, like you, Shane, and we've talked about this in the past, when whenever they're looking for people to help, you and I just, for some reason, it's like anti-gravity, our, our hand just suddenly starts rising in the room and it becomes a bit of a problem, right? So it can be difficult to uh, do some of your own stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm a member, I'm actually a, a club member of the Kitchener-Waterloo Center still. And the reason why I did that is just that it helps me to... Uh, maintain a practical level of of involvement with an astronomy club um by by separating myself by two or three hundred or two or three thousand kilometers 
So yeah, I'm that's that's a fair strategy. <laughs> yeah, but I but I do I do uh, I do contribute. I'm sending them some material. Uh, Michael uh, Wright is uh, a coordinator and organizer there. Um, I might do like an online presentation uh, for them at some point in time. But it it really does help me keep it in check. Otherwise, I just end up getting sucked down the the rabbit hole too far. And yeah, it's it's allowing me to put some limits on my involvement. But uh, going on with uh, Don's email, Don says, uh, I just signed up to donate through Patreon. And in thinking about it, I thought that having more donors would entice others to do the same. So we we do appreciate that, Don. And certainly other people have been uh, contributing as well. And it does help us out. Um, you know, in the first couple of years of the podcast, Shane, I, we were floating the boat entirely on our own. And it was always like, uh, okay, who's paying for this bill and who's paying for that bill kind of conversation that we were having. And it's and it's fine. It's not crazy expensive, but it always seemed like there was a bill coming due one way or another. And now uh, we just don't really have to worry about paying for the podcast. We can just enjoy doing the podcast. And then I think uh, last year we had enough left over that we went out for dinner and that was quite nice. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty good. Uh, Don goes on to say that... Uh, Thanks for your kind words in the photos. Don sent us this beautiful photo of the Heart and Soul Nebula, which is up on, is it up on the Cassiopeia Perseus border, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, says it was taken with an Explorer Scientific 6-inch refractor and a ZWO ASI color camera using a Skywatcher EQR6, which is very similar to my mount that is not in my observatory yet. I had uh, a great guiding that night, or I had great guiding that night. Uh, and it is 55-minute exposures. Wow, that's 250 minutes. What's that, like four hours or something? Yeah, yeah, that's a long like time. That. Holy smokes. He was using an Optolong Lenhance filter. Uh, he says, I'm not yet fluent in pro- the processing of things, but use software called Cyril to fine-tune uh, the stacked image. I'll periodically share some, some shots with you if I think they may be worth uh, And he said, he, he kind of downplays his great imaging capabilities as some people do, but I really do think it's a beautiful photo. He goes on to say, once again, thanks for your efforts. You and Shane put into the show. I'm constantly learning so much as a listener regards Don. Thank you so much, Don. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, really nice. Um, appreciate the uh, support. We had a RESC member who's um, a solar photographer and uh, they had sent me a solar image back uh, last year and I enjoyed it. And then Alistair Ling, when I was looking for photos for the RESC Observer's calendar, and Alistair helps me with the calendar, and uh, he recommended that person that, oh, you should contact Richard for a photo. I said, oh, I think I have a photo from Richard already. So I went back and looked at the photo again. Now, I, I don't think I had made the connection that he was an RESC member. And uh, I went, oh, this should go in the calendar. <laughs> so I contacted him and said, um, Alistair mentioned that you'd be a good contributor for the calendar. Are you interested? And he was really, he was really excited. But again, I think he downplayed his, uh, his astrophotography as well. You know, the, the funny thing about astronomy, Shane, kind of getting back to the clubs is that there's so many different aspects of it that some people are into solar observing and into double stars. Some people like to look at deep sky objects or take photographs or sketch or, or whatever it is, you can almost pick like a particular interest. Michael Wright um, has hit on this in the last episode. We read one of his emails about uh, different people. Somebody's like uh, really into lunar observing. Somebody's really into comments. Somebody's really into 
like he's really into uh, looking at, he, he's observing some of the ARP galaxies right now. You can almost become like that club expert in that one uh, facet, whatever it is. It's it's pretty cool like that. So sometimes I think people don't don't realize that maybe as much that, yeah, even though maybe you are just, not just, but you are an amateur astronomer like we are, you, you can become uh, a pretty good expert fairly quickly compared to just about anybody else that that, uh, that you would at least have locally. So kind of neat like that. Yeah, absolutely. I had a note here from Chris. It's uh, fairly just a few lines. Do you want to just read it really quick and then we'll get into maybe talking about the calendar some? Yeah. So he says, hi, Chris, hope all are doing well. I've been quiet on email, but still listening. Uh, my club is considering a bulk purchase of the 2024 RASC calendar. I'm wondering if the calendar is geared towards Can uh, Canada's northern latitudes. Uh, we are on Long Island in New York, so we are approximately 40 degrees north. I recall a recent episode where you said you were writing the calendar differently and want to make sure it will apply for us. I believe we are purchasing through the Astronomical League. Uh, P.S. I sold my Lost Mandy AZ-8 and purchased a Burlaback Planet and Rowan Astronomy AZ-100. The leap in quality and design is amazing. Uh, now to get out there and report. Have a great weekend. I'm very interested in both of those mounts, actually. So, so am I. <laughs> I'd be very curious to hear uh, some reviews and reports on that. Yeah, I, and I get it. I, I think he, he bought his AZ-8 or AZ-8 which is a Lons Mandy mountain. So Lons Mandy is a longstanding producer of high quality mounts. I've, I've spoken with them. I was super eager in the AZ-8 and they, they're even thinking about doing one for the 11 as well. And then Rowan Astronomy is a new organization building um, mounts. And, and they are both very uh, appealing now. And he says that the design is different, but people should know that, that initially the AZ-8 uh, was much less expensive. It came with a tripod. Um, there's some other differences with the AZ-8 versus the Rowan, I think, which is significantly more expensive and doesn't come with price. It, it's just different. It's just a, a step. It's a step up in price. And of course, uh, when you do pay considerably more, you're, you're going to get uh, maybe some different capacity and, and different qualities in the, in the device itself. So I don't want to I don't want to knock laws, Mandy. They, they've done an excellent job there too. Uh, but they did unfortunately have to increase the price when they re-released it. So I had put my name on the wait list for an AZ-8. I was going to buy one. Mm -hmm. And when they re-released it, uh, the price was getting close to what I could get an EQ AZ-6 used for. And in fact, that's what I ended up doing is I bought the AZ EQ-6 which which has some other functionality but originally i was hoping just to get a uh a purely z map but anyway I, I think that's neat i'll be looking forward to uh his report mm -hmm. well thanks for the email chris um i've had a few emails uh about the calendar and i haven't really shared as uh as many details with the calendar so as some of our listeners may know and and maybe not as many of them uh, know about this, but I'm the editor for the RASC Observer's Calendar. And this is a physical calendar. You can tack on your office wall or observatory wall or bathroom stall or wherever you want to put it. And uh, it's it's a volunteer position. So I just, just do this out of the goodness of my own heart. I don't know. In a way, I don't know why I do it, but I do it. We sell thousands of calendars each year and it re represents a significant source of revenue for the RASC. 
Uh, and it, it is a big responsibility. And I spend much more time on this than working on most other things and perhaps more time on that, perhaps, or at least as much as this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, just with our side conversations, I, I know you put a lot of time into it. Yeah. And I haven't talked about it as much on the podcast. There's been a few reasons. So at first, the first year I did it, um, which I think was the first full year we were doing the podcast, sort of coincidentally enough, the, the reason why I was asked to do it was because of the podcast. And my long-term goal was to sync the calendar with the podcast. So it, it is a volunteer position. And, and much like how Shane and I just do the the podcast for fun. It's it's sort of like that in a way. Each month we do the objects to observe in the night sky, or more recently as as we've re, renamed it to the observer's calendar for the month. And and it is because of that it, it's taken a couple of years for me to sync up the calendar with how we're doing our uh, our monthly podcast. But that was one of the goals in me taking on the project because uh, I think that sort of consistently month to month our monthly episodes and what you can see in the night sky has sort of been um, one of our, our flagship things that we've done with the podcast, Shane, I think if I'm not misspeaking here. Yeah. I think that it's probably one of our more popular or more consistently popular episodes that we release on a regular cadence. Um, Yeah. It always gets a lot of listens. Yeah. We have sort of a a particular way of doing it and I've always enjoyed it. Um, I didn't think it would it, it, when we started doing them, I didn't have any idea of the popularity or anything. And, uh, you know, it really has helped us along. And I think it is also uh, helping to focus my own astronomy and that as as well. I'm not sure about you, Shane, but I, I find it helpful to go through all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I started working on it and I worked on it for about a year or so before I actually became the editor. So I was kind of plodding away on it. They, they ended up getting into a bit of a jam. Yeah, I think is probably the way to put it, where the previous editor was uh, looking to stop doing it. And they wanted to make sure that whoever, they just wanted to make sure that uh, whoever took it on had that background of generating that kind of data. And they also wanted to make some improvements. And I, you know, what it boiled down to was we were already doing that in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was you know, uh, a good, uh, a good way to kind of carry that forward. And for me, what I liked about it is that previously when we were, when I was first helping to make up the notes for our objects to observe in the night sky each month, I was, I was using a variety of different references and I always struggle with the fact that it wasn't consistent. So different um, materials might use Eastern standard time. They might use a different time zone. They, it might be um, an event that was visible on the other side of the planet than where we are, our listeners are. Um, th- there was all kinds of little challenges like that. So what I've done over the past three years with the calendar is I've uh, made sure that the events that are going in the calendar are synced up with what you can see in the North American skies. Okay. That took three years. <laughs> there's there's a lot to it and unfortunately it does take an awful lot of time so if you just want to take the raw data and i get data from uh, a variety of sources talk about that here in a second you can pretty easily just obtain or buy or find the data uh, months or years in advance and then just plunk it into a spreadsheet and and publish it uh, but that's not what i'm doing here uh, what i'm doing is actually going through and looking uh, at all the events but Shane, just to bring you in, I've I've thrown up some softball 
questions because we've had um i've had several emails from people both uh through the podcast as as well as outside of the podcast asking uh about the calendar maybe i can just start and just uh, if you don't mind i know we're not that much into pre-scripted kind of questions but uh, i just put these on here anyway which were questions from other people maybe i'll just have you read them one by one yeah so the first one uh on the list here is just where can you use the calendar and really this gets back to uh Chris's email here just about, uh, you know, is it only good for Canada or, or can other folks uh, get into it too? The short answer is North America. When uh, we run the calendar data, we set it for both 40 degrees and 50 degrees north latitude, um, which are for Southern and mid Canadian latitudes. And thanks to the podcast, I'm also getting uh, fairly good at rounding things out for nearby locations. So more and more, I'm putting things like instead of saying uh, Eastern Canada, I'm saying Eastern North America, because 40 degrees does extend down. And more and more, I'm also looking at the regions around because, of course, even in Canada, see, we have um, observers and peoples um, up to uh, the Arctic Circle, you know, up, up and past 60 degrees north latitude. And that wasn't as well encompassed in previous editions of the calendar either. And so I'm trying to include those regions and then going down as far as like uh, maybe even like Mexico and taking a look at how events are going to play out down there. It That part is not completely done, but I, I'm getting close. I, I think it's, it's close enough to say that if you get the calendar, it's going to say that an object is so many degrees away from the moon, for example. The difference between here and and somewhere in the states is uh, not going to be significantly different. And if it is different enough, chances are I've eliminated it from the list because it's not close enough for whatever locations that that I'm using as well. What does it look like, Chris? Uh, you know, I think we all get a calendar has dates and maybe some pictures of baby lions and things. But I thought you were going to say ducks. <laughs> Sometimes ducks. Yeah. Uh, what What does this one look like? Well, it does have lions like Leo. Anyway, Ooh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> each page opens with a beautiful uh, top image, which is captured by an amateur astro imager slash RASC member. And then the bottom has that familiar monthly grid to it. Um, I write a description with the uh, imager that goes below the image. And then it's all properly framed with a graphic designer. And uh, down below, not each day of the year has an event but um, I try to put as many interesting events as possible into the uh, monthly cell. So you might, might see, well, such and such event is for all of North America, such for East or West uh, coasts or into the North, or, you know, maybe in the future uh, I'll start. I, like, I kind of worked a little bit more on the North this year and some on the South. And then next year I'll, I'll try to include more on the South, but I, I looked at them all. I think it's pretty good. It just looks like a regular calendar image on top, the grid down below. But then um, we also have a little section for where the planets are each month and how you can find them in the nighttime sky. And then, of course, in each of the cells, if there's like a planetary opposition or greatest elongation or things of that nature, I'll include those as well. And then Dave Chapman actually has included um, historical highlights. But OK, we'll, we'll go on to the next question. Sure. You've mentioned you've been working on this, uh, you know, kind of like last year was your first kick and and this is, uh, I guess, round two. What improvements are in the calendar for, is it 2024? What improvements are there for 2024? 
There we go. Thank you, Shane. Uh, the graphic designer and I, who's Michael Gatto, we also used to observe together when I lived out east, and we spent more Michael than me. Uh, spend a lot of time redesigning the calendar this year. And it has more of an observer's feel to it. So this includes little cool planet icons. So it has almost, but not quite like a vintage feel to some of those things. Like you might've seen sort of more um, recent trends for how things are being presented in more of a graphical format. And so we're doing that. We used a new font and new spacing to make it more readable. And we've worked uh, really hard to set up a set of guidelines for both imagers, for the graphics, as well as for the printing. So it's like a threefold uh, way to improve the print quality that ends up being in the hands of whoever buys it. So what I did is I had imagers submit their work earlier. So I got the images a little bit earlier than we have in the past. I ran a test print at our printers, and then they mailed out and distributed for review copies to myself, um, to our graphic designer, to our office, to each imager, and to a small review panel. And we made corrections based on that physical printing. And also, I had additional uh, sets of images from people who submitted images, but I wasn't sure how it would look once it was printed. And so I printed things um, a couple different ways. And then with that imager, we selected the image that would work best for the calendar in in a few instances and made some corrections so that is a very painstaking process mm -hmm. yeah that sounds uh that sounds like a painstaking process for sure <laughs> but it looks it looks so nice mm -hmm. um see the challenge is that everybody for the most part is taking and th there's exceptions in this calendar as well are taking digital images and the way that an image presents on a computer screen is that it's backlit, okay? It's mm -hmm. being um, lit by the computer. And so it, it will look different when it is printed off and being front lit by whatever light is in the room. And, and we all know this. And the imagers, they all know this as well. But because of that, we made um, some different selections based on how something's printed. For example, uh, Eric, who's a listener to the show, um, he submitted a sketch and the sketch was in uh, positive relief. So it was the nebula was in graphite and the background was white, okay? And what we uh, talked about was whether or not it would look better like that as he had sketched it, or whether it should be in negative with the uh, colors reversed where the nebula would be white and the background would be black with white stars. So I didn't know. And I did, didn't just want to make a random call. So we printed both and we talked about it and we selected one of those. There's a lot of work to go through and do that for every image. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's uh, that's really nice. Yeah. And this is just what I'm doing for fun. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But it is it is neat to, to do this. There's probably, there was a few other people who authored calendars in the past. There's not as many of us anymore. Uh, people like Terrence Dickinson, unfortunately, passed away this past year. He used to have a calendar. That's no longer in production. Guy Otwell used to have a calendar. I'm not sure if that's still in production or not. There was there was a few other people in the past that would produce calendars of a certain quality, and I'm trying to get it up to that quality with the type of events people are interested in. And it's been successful. We're selling more calendars. We, we are selling 30% more calendars year over year since I've been taking it down this process. Mm, right on. 
All right. Next one here, Chris. Um, <laughs> and this one might be on a few people's minds. Yes. Why would anybody buy a calendar? It's 2024. Can't you just get this information online, on your phone, on your watch, all sorts of other places? So the, the short answer is no. Um, and it, this is a strange thing. And again, it, it goes back when we were discussing this at the publications committee and it raised actually i'm gonna i think dave chapman and other people had raised it as well why are we still making a calendar this seems strange in the 2020s there's there's a couple of reasons why but what i do is uh when and again it goes back to how i was originally getting some of our data for the objects to observe in the sky each month for the podcast and i wasn't as happy with it and that was because i was relying on other people's interpretation of source data and I and it's very difficult to get some of the source data. So some of my source data is from the United States Naval Observatory, which the RASC has a subscription to, and they send me their data. So I get data from the United States Naval Observatory directly, and it's unmediated. So I get the raw data, and then I can go and take a look myself, and I can get it earlier. So I don't have to wait for that month to occur. However, like most sources, it is generated, and so somebody like like me, like yours truly in this case, has to go through and figure out what is visible here in North America versus New Zealand or whatever. So it's raw data. So it doesn't come in and say, this event is going to be for Regina, Saskatchewan, or that event is going to be for... You just get the event and time in UTC, in universal uh, time. And, and that's it. So I like that because then I can actually go through and run all the simulations. I, I use a variety of data sources. So it also gives me access to different things. For example, Alistair Ling, who's been a guest on the show, he provides the lunar dates and times okay. and events for those. And he writes the sky this month for astronomy magazine. So this, this is a pretty good source for getting uh, raw data from somebody who actually has been writing uh, sky this month material for decades use other raw data from dave lane so if you've used starry night software you've used some of dave lane's back-end data as far as i understand i hopefully i'm not speaking out of turn but um he has um generated formulas and and how a lot of software for planetariums he has his own earth-centered universe software he was selling for well i'm not sure if he still is he helped generate the algal uh, maximum minimas. There's some other material in there from Dave. So this is a lot of primary source data that we can get far in advance. Uh, Pat Kelly, who creates this guide by month for the Observer's Handbook, also sends me some of his data. And so I use these data sources. What I do is I take that and I reduce down the events to those that are visible in North America, and I run simulations for time zones. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I run them for AT Atlantic time, ET for Eastern time, CT for Central time, MT for Mountain time, and PT for uh, Pacific time. And I select the events that work for people in our hemisphere based on those time zones in general. I'm trying not to do as many as like if an event is like right at the horizon in uh, sort of uh, Nova Scotia or like, I guess, New York in this instance, you know, if it's just like barely, you can kind of sort of see it and it's not something of particular rarity. If it's just like a regular monthly event, I, I don't include it. It needs to be visible for a wide area. So that's the other thing that you're going to see. That wasn't being done before me taking this on, but in discussions with Dave, we decided uh, to do it that way. Dave Chapman, speaking of Dave Chapman, he provides, um, along with Dan, uh, historical dates 
And along with Dave uh, Blake Nancaro, we're looking over my selections and providing feedback and corrections. So I would go through this process using source data from people that are providing source data for other publications, software, magazines, uh, going back decades. I was selecting the ones that I thought should work, running my own simulations, and then I was having a small group of people provide feedback and make corrections and suggestions on those. So this is um, kind of a laborious process, but it makes for very accurate information. Hmm, right on. Last one here, Chris. So if if an astronomy club is interested in in procuring some of these calendars or maybe doing it as a fundraiser for their club, is that an option or, or how can they acquire a bundle of these things to distribute to uh, their members? Yeah, the way to get them is to go to rasc.car, Robert A. Astronomy S. Society, C for Canada, uh, .ca slash, I think it's store shop. But anyway, if you go to rasc.ca and click on store, um, you can go into the calendar, calendar handbook section, and uh, you will see that there's some options for buying in bulk, or you can just write the office. There's a place to like contact the office there if you want to buy in a uh, a different number. And I know there's some organizations um, that have done that in the past, have bought uh, larger numbers. And then uh, what happens is because, see, we're volunteers that are that are creating this. We're basically doing it on a you know a vol voluntary basis. Uh, our, our margins are much more flexible. And so the RASC is able to set up a discount with whoever is ordering the calendars. So then um, a club can decide to charge uh, the price. They can charge the cover price or they can charge a discounted price or however they want to do it. And uh, then they can make a few dollars. So, you, you know, a lot of the clubs will do this and then uh, it, it allows them to use the calendar as a bit of a, as a bit of a fundraiser. So, and, and people do enjoy it. It's uh it is in a way um, something that might seem a bit strange that uh, we're producing a, a physical paper calendar in 2024. It, it can go on your wall and it's made to go on your wall. And then you can always have reference and, and access to it um, whenever you want. It's it's very handy. Like I use it when I'm making up our objects to observe the night sky each month or the observer's calendar by month now, as we're calling it. What I wanted to be able to do is just grab that very quickly flip through it and in like five or 10 minutes, be able to have all of our events for the month, apart from like comets or if we put in a double star, double star deep sky object, I just wanted to be able to have that there instead of having to surf like the entire internet, trying to pull a bunch of random things together and figure out what's visible and what's not. This, uh, this gives me the opportunity just to have that and communicate it with people through our podcast, which is for free. Anybody can, can uh, listen to this. But as well, like you can go and order one of these calendars or your club can order one of these calendars uh, today or tomorrow or whatever. And uh, and then you can grab that, open it up, and you you will see right off the hop all of the stuff that Shane and I, hopefully, as long as we keep doing this, will talk about in the next uh, year in 2024. It's already uh, laid out and ready to roll. So at the very least, Shane, we're going to do um, basically what's up in the Night Sky podcast for next year because I've already written all the material. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, easy, easy sledding. In front easy. Of it's yeah. easy. It's no problem at all, but uh, e easy for my seat anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, doing the podcast and that is, is some work in itself. Um, so having this stuff already ready um, to go is, uh, is beneficial. One thing I wanted to do before talking about this, 
and this took about a year to do, is I made the calendar um, to work like this last year. And what I did is every month I would sit down with the calendar and I would go through everything that I put in and I would validate it again against what we were going to talk about in the podcast. And so, because I wanted to make sure that I'd done it the right way the first time. And so I ran um, a check here for the past 10 months. And then now I feel confident because I didn't find any errors. I'm really hoping I don't have any errors this year either, especially since we're putting it out on the podcast, right? Like, it, you know, I don't like to make mistakes. I don't want to make them in two different spots. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. All right, sir. Um, that takes us to the end. Is there anything else you would like to add? It's not like my day job or anything like that, although it took me um, almost 600 hours to to work on it with a large group of other people as volunteers, including Dave Chapman, Alistair Ling, and other people have been on the podcast. And uh, you can order it at rasc.ca. And uh, if there's a problem with it, let me know. It's my responsibility. So you can uh, send me your uh, critiques or, or complaints. But I do create it as as a service and, and again, as, as part of what we're doing with this podcast. Oh, that's awesome. Well, this was good, Chris. Hopefully that answers a lot of questions uh, that people may have had about the calendar. Thanks, Shane. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Please uh, subscribe, do us a favor, and share the show with other stargazers you know. Uh, you can always send us your show ideas, observations, questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to order a calendar, again, go to RASC ca and go to the store if your club wants to buy them you can see there's bulk discounts there as well thanks again for listening thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you are interested in more information would like to contact us or if you would like to support the podcast check out our website actualastronomy.com <laughs>